Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. One out, all out. Uh, we are facing, apparently, a long, hot summer of strikes. Is what union leaders are warning. We've done some research which suggests three quarters of a million people could end up taking part in some sort of industrial action this year. We'll speak to some of the union leaders and find out why. We'll look at the economic impact and put it into some historical context too. Uh, before that though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Tuesday, it's Finkelvich, but no Vich, David Ivanovich. He's going to be very wrinkled after spending all this time sitting in a hot spa, uh, but he'll be back soon. But uh, we'll have to make do instead with Daniel Finkelstein and Oliver Cam. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, now it's time to uh, speak to two of our favourite columnists on a Tuesday morning. No Finkelvich, because David Ivanovich, well, who knows where he is or what he's doing, but he's been away for a long time. It's a very long spa break. So we do have Danny Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And joining us in the studio, Oliver Cam. Morning, Matt. Nice to see you. Uh, it's nice to have you here. I don't, really, I don't really feel like you're not welcome, Oliver. So it's, it's important that uh, it's important that you're you're um, here. Uh, right. Let's uh, let's start first of all with uh, the sort of the big political story of the day, if you like. Uh, this this flight that may well take off with perhaps even nobody on it to Rwanda, uh, as Liz Truss suggested uh, earlier on this morning. The government's been criticised left, right, and centre. Is this a, this is a, 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 a press release? It, policy which has just got out of hand isn't it Oliver? yes it's pure <clears throat> excuse me it's pure symbolism and it's symbolism in quite the wrong direction danny and i have argued over many many years on the issue of immigration um on which i'm very liberal indeed but you don't have to share my premise to regard this policy as i, I won't mince words morally abhorrent I completely agree with the bench of bishops of the Church of England on this subject. It is a policy that shames the nation. It makes a political symbol out of people's lives, deporting them to an autocracy where they have no family, no prospects, for no reason except domestic political gain. I think this is a wicked policy by a government that has abandoned the conventions of, uh, of liberal democracy, of conservatism and of basic civic virtue. Uh, Danny, your uh, assessment of it? I don't depart too far from Oliver's assessment, I'm okay. afraid. Um, I, I, I do. I, I, we do differ on one very um, important point, um, which leaves me with more questions to answer than it does Oliver. So for Oliver, the uh, issue is easy. He doesn't really believe we need any policy at all um, 
to uh, control immigration or asylum. He thinks we're so far adrift from the levels of immigration and asylum that we could accept that um, no policy of control is, discussing a policy of control is a waste of uh, time uh, and effort. Um, I don't agree with that. Um, but uh, and that does leave me with the problem that the government was trying to solve. You know, what is the solution? Um, uh, and I'm afraid I don't have anything much stronger than saying this isn't it. Um, for for both uh, the reason that Oliver suggested, I, I don't believe that um, deporting people to a country from whom we would ordinarily accept asylum seekers is an acceptable policy morally. Um, and I'm afraid that I also think it was highly likely to be impractical. It's quite hard to tell where, what the motivation was, whether the motivation was always just a political one, um, or whether it was one of desperation, or whether there was a hope, a residual hope, because this has been a policy idea discussed for a long time, although in a slightly different form, the idea of uh, that different form being the idea of processing asylum elsewhere. This isn't about that. This is about exporting asylum um, seekers to um, to somewhere else. Um, I I can't um, I can't think that that was likely to be practical. And I'm glad that it seems as though it's um, in most cases not legal. So it's one of those things that's legal in principle, but when practically applied to any individual, doesn't sound as though. Uh, it is. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that um, trying to ensure that we have uh, apportioned asylum seeking around the world, that we have um, safe routes, but we also don't uh, allow people to come here illegally is a, a morally unacceptable form of policy. I do occasionally find it quite irritating when people fail to, to, um, to, to say that, you know, to just sort of accept the idea that there's going to be infinite amounts of immigration and think that's not a problem because it's not a problem for them, but it is a problem for lots of other fellow citizens. Uh, but I don't think this is a solution. I cannot stress too strongly that this is not an issue about immigration. This is an issue about a few thousand people who've come on small boats this year, maybe 10,000 people who've come on small boats this year. The small boats are not stopping. And indeed, as those who are deported are adult males, it incentivizes those who operate these crossings to bring women and children. Against these few thousand people um, who uh, ought to be given, and most of whom are uh, legitimate asylum seekers, most of whom should be given safer means of passage. Against that, we're taking quite rightly um, 150,000 Ukrainian uh, uh, migrants. We should be taking many more and potentially hundreds of thousands from Hong Kong, uh, quite rightly under uh, a visa scheme of the government's devising. And to target, to stigmatise um, uh, asylum seekers coming on small boats, I think, is evil. Well, it's not, it's not, to be, um, just, just to uh, kick back against that for a second. So I, I and, and to ensure we make the distinctions properly, I don't think uh, this scheme is acceptable for lots of the reasons that Oliver said, because people are being taken to a place that itself uh, is not a uh, is, is a place from which people seek asylum and which is completely unprepared to accept those people. And I also think this is not about processing offshore our asylum uh, applicants, but about um, exporting people to other countries who may themselves have reasonable claim to asylum in our country. So for all those reasons, um, I do agree with Oliver, um, but it doesn't um, necessarily involve stigmatising people beyond saying um, which is true, that they're coming here using an illegal method, which isn't something that um, that you can, um, 
you can accept as a free country, although it is ironic that we appear to be using what may amount to an illegal method in order to remove people. Um, so uh, I, I, you know, I would only just resist Oliver for a second in, uh, you know, and only on one minor part of what he's saying, but an important part. Um, I do think it is um, reasonable for a country to insist that people arrive here using legal methods. But of course, uh, one of the things you have to accompany that with is we have to provide people with legal methods whereby they can do that, which at the moment we do not. One of the things that I've, I've sort of tried to put my finger on why it sort of in intellectually doesn't make any sense is that you can't simultaneously say that Rwanda is a lovely place, it's a boom, it's put all of its whole business behind, it's a lovely place to go now, and the threat of being sent there is a deterrent. Those, t those two things cannot be true. Well, there's, a re there's a reason why they've chosen Rwanda and not a white English-speaking place. You know, if they were saying, well, if you, if you come no, well, to the UK legally, we'll put you on the next flight to America, that would be an entirely different situation. No, Rwanda, Rwanda's... One of the reasons they've gone to Rwanda is because Rwanda's one of the few places that would agree to this yeah. scheme. And the reason that Rwanda agrees to this scheme is that uh, Kagame is extremely keen on maintaining what is, in fact, a pretense, which is that um, he is... Um, the sort of humanitarian remnants of a former genocide, um, bearing no responsibility for civil liberties problems in that region, um, and um, the, and the friend of Western governments. And this is itself, you know, one of the things that I'm most concerned about in this is the uh, the sort of uh, the, the washing of um, Rwanda's reputation, which I think is unfortunately not um, the Rwandan government, that is to say, not yeah. the Rwandan people, but the Rwandan government's reputation, uh, which I think is not an acceptable uh, thing for us to be doing quite aside from the rest of the policy implications. Yes, it's a, it's a chaotic policy whose rationale is, as you imply, Matt, confused, and it's tied up with the real politique of accepting the Rwandan autocracy for what it is. It, when it um, emerged in the wake of the catastrophic genocide um, uh, nearly a generation ago, 28 years ago, um, it, it, it was not fated to become an autocratic state um, uh, founded on repression, but that's what, it, that's what it's become. And um, the position of the Rwandan government and the position of the British government, um, they're, they're um, uh, sort of a symbiosis yeah. of opportunism. And, and the fact that, because I looked back at it, the day that Boris Johnson made the big speech announcing it was the day after he was fined, uh, the day that uh, Priti Patel announced that the plane would take off on June the 14th was the day that the sort of the sixth letter went in against Boris Johnson during the recess. This does all feel like a like a policy driven by press release rather than e even even on their own terms. It hasn't been thought through properly. I, I, I'm not I'm not sure I do accept that. Uh, I don't you know that it seems odd um, to be making these kind of nuanced distinctions. Oliver's right about the broad thrust. I'm not sure I think that's the only the reason they've done this is because the large part of the Conservative Party voter base attaches a lot a, a lot of importance to what is an important issue, which is whether or not we can control our borders. And the government has found it very difficult to uh, achieve this objective and has found and has long hit upon the idea of some sort of offshore processing as I say the problem with this policy apart from anything else is that it isn't offshore processing it's it's deportation which is an entirely different policy um, but I don't think um, that uh, the motivation for it is purely short-term politics it's uh, you know I mean I know this is not a bit of a ridiculous distinction but it's important to think about this clearly I think it's long-term politics rather than short-term politics if that makes sense Atavistic politics, I would put it.
Somebody's uh, just said, actually, and what happens to those sent to Rwanda if the application of asylum is always in a poo? Do they stay in Rwanda or uh, sent back to the UK or elsewhere? They just stay in Rwanda. It's, it's not a, a processing centre. Exactly. They stay in Rwanda and will subsequently make attempts to do the journey all over again, as will many other people. Uh, yeah, well, well, we'll we'll keep across. Well, we'll see. Half nine tonight, we'll find out if this plane actually takes off. Boris Johnson actually has just been speaking in cabinet, uh, where he said that the uh, government represented the tradition of welcoming people to the UK, as he defended the Rwanda policy. He said there were many around the cabinet table whose immediate ancestors came to this country to seek a new life here, often in fear of uh, fleeing for their lives uh, and fleeing persecution. Uh, but he said that uh, the government was working with humanity and compassion to tackle illegal immigration as he defended it, that Rwanda policy. It is possible. By the way, my my parents came to this country through legal routes um, for various different reasons as a, effectively asylum seekers. Um, and um, it, the, Boris Johnson is right that there is a that there is an issue, um, but this just is not it's possible for there to be an issue without this being a solution. And it's possible that we've got a problem that's extremely difficult to find a humane solution to, but the answer to that cannot be to find an inhumane solution that doesn't work. Yeah, just, just saying, uh, people pointing out this 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 policy uh, isn't good and won't work doesn't mean you're not not allowed to say that just because you can't come up with an alternative suggestion. It's still a bad yeah. idea, potentially. A uh, little bit of breaking news for you. Lord Guite, Boris Johnson's advisor on ministerial interest, has said it is reasonable to suggest the Prime Minister being fined over Partygate could be a breach of the ministerial code. I'll read you the full quote, just because it's in... Um, quite excellent, uh, civil service, service ease. Uh, if I am to take the view of, say, the ordinary man or woman in the language, as it were, on the face of the code, then I think it's reasonable that some, and indeed many people, have written to me making this point. It's reasonable to say that perhaps a fixed penalty notice and the Prime Minister paying for it may have constituted not meeting the overarching duty of the ministerial code of complying with the law. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I think. We get, of course, we got... it didn't. <laughs> um, and 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 I, and I, you know, the, that's one of the reasons why I why I took the position that I did that, that he had to resign. Um, I thought it clearly did breach the ministerial code, and I'm afraid I think the Conservative Party has decided voted to decide that didn't matter, and, and it does matter. Um, as it as it happens, I'm sympathetic to the idea that not all breaches of the ministerial code should lead to resignation. Unfortunately, I think this one. Uh, it wasn't an example of that. I think breaking the law clearly uh, is one of those that would cr cross that threshold. I'm not really quite understand, sure I understand what the purpose of um, Lord Geit's um, message is, because it's really for him to make a decision for himself, not to say it's reasonable for other people to conclude that. What we want to know is whether he concludes that. <laughs> yes. Um, it, it, is a, it is a uh, an understatement of the blindingly obvious. <laughs> uh, the problem is... With this informal system, uh, the prime minister is is in charge of breaches of the yeah. ministerial code, uh, which makes which makes a mockery of the process when you have a prime minister who is heedless of the requirements of, of prime ministerial office. If you've got if you've got the rules, you do need at least the, the, the sense that people are going to follow. Uh, let, um, <clears throat> let's uh, move away from British politics and talk about uh, the January the sixth hearings, which have been. Um, Coming out of Washington, Donald Trump's Attorney General Bill Barfield, the president, was becoming detached from reality as he persisted with crazy claims he'd been cheated of the 2020 election. Uh, the persistent fraud campaign was lucrative, uh, raising $250 million from donors to fight for the false claims, the committee said. I mean, some of the revelations, some of the footage that's come out, it's just been appalling, Danny. 
Yes, uh, I, I, I'm doing Carol Walker show all this week, and I last night interviewed Mike Mulvaney, the who resigned after this, who was Donald Trump's chief of staff and then special envoy to Northern Ireland, and he said that Donald Trump was genuinely convinced that he had uh, lost the uh, ele- that he'd won the election and it had been stolen from him. I think what's interesting about that is that um, you, it shows that you can convince yourself of pretty much anything because I knew in advance that he would seek to persuade himself of that. Essentially, if you look at all the political science of uh, democracies and how they work, they're not very good accountability mechanisms. Uh, they're not very good um, mechanisms for keeping voters informed. Uh, they're, the only thing that they're really good at is replacing one government with another uh, so that people don't become drunk on power. And if that mechanism is rejected, you really are rejecting democracy itself. It, it couldn't be more serious. Yes, I, I totally agree with Danny. There's a real oh. risk. There's a real risk looking at these hearings um, uh, and finding them so bizarre. There's a real risk of, of uh, underreacting to them. Um, I think it's completely fair to describe this, uh, this as an attempted insurrection against the processes of a constitutional democracy. And the statement that President Trump has just put out is as preposterous uh, as you can imagine. It um, is a, uh, it, it inveighs against the um, Biden administration for supposedly presiding over economic catastrophe. It's uh, an attempt to deflect attention, um, or at least it would be if it didn't repeat these um, risible fabrications, none of which have been substantiated, and all of which his wiser counsels attempted to dissuade him from while listening to a, a plainly drunk uh, Giuliani, Rudolf Giuliani, during the, um, during the, the television coverage. It, it's it's for, for those like Danny and me who are strong supporters of the transatlantic alliance, great admirers of American civic culture, this is a very sobering uh, awakening about the tenuousness of democracy when you have... Um, uh, an executive uh, or a previous executive determined to destroy it. Uh, and what about when people, in fact, I think the hashtag Tory fascist was trending on Twitter a minute ago, when people sort of try to draw connections with British politics. Um, Liz Truss was being interviewed this morning on the BBC and uh, they drew a, a, a connection between breaking the law on the Northern Ireland Protocol and what Vladimir Putin might, might take from that. Is that hyperbolic is it a different case when people sort of try to join that line between decisions taken by Boris Johnson and law breaking and a disregard for for conventional political and electoral norms and what happened in America and therefore a line that runs all the way through to Russia do you think that's clearly illegitimate that's certainly hyperbole um, it, it is not at all the case that uh, an elected government or an elected executive in the United States um, or Great Britain is comparable to the um, lawless aggression and murderousness of the Putin regime. But that's a very low bar against which to assess the conduct of the Westminster government. I do think this is a government that is heedless of the conventions of, uh, uh, of a liberal democracy um, with an unwritten constitution, heedless of law and heedless of basic humanity, as we were discussing in the first section of, uh, of this yeah. session. Uh, just fine, I want to ask you about accents, because a study's found that still people with strong northern accents are viewed as less intelligent and less educated than their southern counterparts. A team of researchers at Northumbria University said that accentism caused profound social, economic and educational harm for those with denigrated accents in the UK. 
Yes, it's a it's a a finding of sociolinguists, those who study language and society, that's replicated right across studies, and it, it's it's a it's a great bane on yeah. British society. Um, the notion that accents tell you something about the culture, the intelligence of those who utter them. We all have accents, um, almost all accents, uh, apart from the oddity of received pronunciation, which very few people speak, um, are tied to a particular region. And um, some of the finest broadcasters I know, um, let's leave you aside, Matt, but my, <laughs> my dear friend Beth Rigby, um, gets tons of mail, yeah, yeah. some of which she's shown me, about her supposed dropping of G's. It's a linguistic error. It's not only rude. It's not only socially destructive. It's a linguistic error. Danny, your view on accents. Are you going to do a series of accents for us? It shows how strong unconscious biases are. And when we reject them, uh, we're rejecting something that is obvious. Uh, we, we reject the idea that they exist. We're rejecting something that's obvious. So the, this, this is just one form of that, uh, but it's pernicious by itself. Daniel Fickstein and Oliver Cam there. You can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, a long hot summer of strikes. 1 out all out union bosses are warning of a long hot summer of strikes An analysis by this programme suggests that more than three quarters of a million workers in the UK could take industrial action this year. I'm joined in the studio by uh, Times Radio reporter Dominic Housechild, who's been crunching the numbers for us. Dom, talk us through what you found. So doing an analysis of um, workers across the country who have either confirmed to go on strike or have been asked to go on strike by their unions who are being balloted for strikes, we found that nearly a million people across the country are considering or confirmed to go on strike 
this summer. So that's everything from railway workers to binmen, even breweries are looking to go on strike. And there could be hundreds of thousands more, including GPs, nurses, uh, workers at Heathrow and at other airports. Um, it, it's, it's really um, uh, a, a worrying scenario for a lot of people in this country. And of course, I suppose the, the sort of um, service that we're talking about, if, if a group of people in an office stage to strike, it affects them, clearly they don't get paid for the day, uh, but doesn't have a huge knock-on effect on the public. But when we are talking trains, bins, postal services, health services... Mm buses, teachers, civil this has have a massive societal impact too. Absolutely. And and this is exactly what happened in the late 1970s when we had, you know, obviously the winter of discontent when uh, binmen were piling up bags of rubbish in Leicester Square uh, protesting the Prime Minister then uh, Wilson's policies on uh, public sector wage caps in order to curb inflation. Obviously, inflation is now at 10%. It's a bit of a record high uh, for the past few decades. So really, people are feeling the pressure. And one trade union official told me privately that it feels like we're heading into general strike territory. Well, that's what we thought we'd do in this half an hour is uh, take a look through uh, the, the industries affected and what this might all mean. Multiple industries have been hit with what union leaders say is a perfect storm of high inflation, a restricted labour market and the cost of living crisis. Disruption will begin this month when 40,000 members of the RMT union staged three 24-hour strikes on June the 21st, 23rd and 25th. That's next week. In what will be the biggest disruption of the UK's rail network in a generation. The RMT's Senior Assistant General Secretary, Ed Dempsey, told Times Radio his members were fed up with decades of stagnating wage growth. I've heard Boris Johnson say that his priority is addressing the cost of living crisis, and that's great. And I've heard talk about tax cuts and everything else. But at the bottom of it, people in Britain need a pay rise desperately. That includes railway workers, and I say this for all workers in this country. We have got to move to a high-wage economy, and in the railway industry... We have got to take the private profits out because there's plenty of money going in there. It's going into private profits. We think we've got to give workers in the industry a fair deal and we've got to lower fares for the travelling public. That's got to be the priority. That was Eddie Dempsey from the RMT. While the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy told us it was disappointing that the RMT have prematurely taken action that could risk turning passengers away from the railways for good. As the Transport Secretary has said, we're looking at every possible avenue to ensure that future strikes do not punish the travelling public. Well, the first day of the rail action will coincide with the walkout of 10,000 workers on the London Underground and a move that will cripple tube services in the capital. They'll also be joined by 1,000 members of the Unite Union. As left, the train drivers' union has announced strikes on Greater Anglia, Hull Trains and Tramlink later this month and is balancing members on other services. And the Transport Salaried Staffs Association, the TSSA, which represents workers in non-driver roles, has also served notice to ballot more than 6,000 staff at Network Rail. It's previously announced strike ballots among its members at four rail firms, Avanti West Coast, Cross Country, East Midlands and West Midlands Trains. But for the government and for the public, things are probably only going to get worse. Paul Nowak is the Deputy General Secretary of the TUC, which represents five and a half million members under its affiliate organisations. And he explained to me why these concerns are coming to a head this summer. OK, I think what we've seen over the last uh, five or six months is a, is a small but steady increase in the number of workers taking 
uh, industrial action for all sorts of different reasons. In some cases, it'll be because of job cuts. In some cases, it'll be because um, they're fighting back against proposals to fire and rehire staff. Uh, in some cases, it'll be around uh, pay. But I think I'm really thinking about that last issue. I mean, there's a real set of issues here now. We've had the biggest squeeze on wages in 200 years. People have had nearly a decade now of real terms pay cuts. And I think that people are just beginning to say enough is enough. Um, if I don't take action, if my employer doesn't pay me more, I'm not going to be able to pay the heating bills. I'm not going to be able to do the weekly shop. I'm not going to be able to fill the car. So, you know, this is about workers saying that I can't afford now not to have a pay rise and I'm going to do something about it. And the figures that we've been looking at, if you put together uh, unions which have, have voted for strike action, those that are balloting uh, or considering uh, taking action, we're getting close on to a million people uh, over the next sort of coming months. How does that compare to, put, put this into some sort of historical context for us. It, like you said, there were lots of things that have come together. There was already concern like fire and rehire and so on. But then when you throw in the cost of living crisis, put this into context for us. How how serious will the next few months be compared to sort of previous years? Well, I think the level of industrial action reflects the pressures that working people are under. And, you know, the last 20 or 30 years, we've had historically low levels uh, of industrial action. And by historical standards, these are still uh, relatively low levels. But I think what's interesting for me is the diversity of the workers who are taking uh, industrial action or, in fact, uh, voting to take industrial action doesn't mean that everybody who votes will uh, will have to take strike action at the end of the day, because quite often employers will move just because they, they, they've, they've recognised that their workers are really concerned about issues. But, you know, it's everybody from bus drivers to people working uh, uh, in food processing plants to people working in airports uh, uh, to people working in our public services. I mean, this, is, this isn't one group of workers or one particular set of issues. I just think it just reflects the, the wider pressures that working people uh, are under. Now, nobody likes to take strike action. Workers don't like taking strike action. At the end of the day, uh, you lose your pay. It's actually quite difficult to take strike action in this country in order to secure a successful industrial action ballot. You need a majority, not just of those who vote, but who are eligible to vote. That's a democratic test. We don't put on any other sort of ballot uh, in this country. But I think the fact that large numbers of people are voting for industrial action just shows how frustrated people are, how they feel that things need to change. And they want government and employers to take seriously their, their, their demand for a pay rise. And, you know, I, I think in the face of some of the pressures that we know families are, are facing, that communities are facing, that's absolutely legitimate and right. Do you have any sympathy for uh, employers, whether it's actually whether it's public sector or, or private sector? I mean, clearly the very thing which is squeezing individuals, uh, people and workers, you know, the rising cost of gas and electricity, petrol prices, food prices, those are affecting businesses and employers as well. And so if you have staff suddenly coming and saying, look, well, you know, I need a pay rise because prices are going up. Actually, employers will be saying, well, all of our prices are going up as well. They're being squeezed too. What do you think is the sort of, is there a sweet spot where there are, I mean, we're looking at, was it 10%, 11% RPI inflation, um, uh, the cost of living's going up. It's going to be very difficult for any employer, isn't it, to give an 11% pay rise. Is there a sweet spot, you think, where employers employee, and employees could land? Now, obviously, I can't negotiate on behalf of workers on on the radio. What I would say is that there's a big difference between the public and the private sector. And in the private sector, I think actually our members and their unions, one of the things they'll be doing is looking at whether or not their employer can afford 
uh, a pay rise. Everybody wants jobs to be sustainable and for firms to be sustainable. But, you know, if you take the example of, of Royal Mail, this is a company that paid dividends to shareholders of 400 million pounds at the end of last year and then tells its workers that there isn't enough money uh, for a decent pay rise. If you look at the dispute in the railways, uh, the train operating companies, 500 million pounds in profits uh, since the uh, start of the pandemic. The outsourcing companies in rail, 310 million pounds in profits since the start of the pandemic. And yet people not expected to have a, a decent pay rise. So I think in those cases, workers are rightly saying, well, hang about. If you can find money for shareholders, you can find money for staff. In the public sector, you've got a different set of factors at play. And I would just say that last year, and it was just last year, Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson told us we'd seen the end of the public sector pay freeze. And now they're telling workers that, again, they've got to tighten the belts after a decade uh, of, of real terms uh, pay cuts. Actually, I think the government could be setting an example and having a serious set of negotiations with public sector staff about what could we do to mitigate the cost of living crisis? What could we do to put money in the pockets uh, of working people? And there's actually a, a broader issue here, you know, coming on the you know, just off the back of those GDP GDP figures, there's a real danger that we repeat the mistakes that we made after the financial crisis when George Osborne took us through years of austerity that sucked demand out of the economy, that took money out of the pockets of working people. I would hope the government would have a, a more sensible approach. Don't just proclaim the end of the public sector pay freeze, prove it and put real terms pay increases in the pockets of working people. And if that doesn't happen, People have talked about a summer of discontent, even the possibility of going to something more like a general strike. Is that realistic, do you think? Well, I don't think labels like the summer of discontent or winter of discontent are are useful at all, to be honest with you, Matt, because I think it, it sort of downplays the agency of tens of thousands of workers who've taken that difficult decision to vote for strike action. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't get to vote on whether or not people go out to strike. Union leaders don't get vote about whether or not people go out to strike. The people who get the vote are the ordinary working people at the front line of our public services and in some of our, our key private uh, companies. I think what we're seeing at the moment is, 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 is strikes and, and industrial action that aren't connected. I don't think you could rule out as we move later in the year that we'll see more coordination of that industrial action. I mean, going back a decade or so now, we saw nearly 30 public sector unions take coordinate action uh, around public sector uh, pensions. I think the key thing is that actually every single one of those workers that's taken strike action would rather not be taking strike action. They're not doing it out of some sort of political demand. They're doing it because they want to see decent wages. They don't want job cuts imposed on them. They want to see their employers take them seriously. So it's going to be very different in different employers and different settings. Uh, as I say, I think the key thing is that government has a plan to deal with these issues. And frankly, it doesn't. I mean, we've seen completely the opposite. We've seen governments ramping up the pressure and exacerbating the tensions rather than trying to think about what the practical solutions. Uh, that was Paul Nowak, Deputy General Secretary of the TUC, uh, speaking to me here on Times Radio, explaining some of the issues uh, ahead of a potential, he didn't like the phrase, summer of discontent, uh, but uh, <laughs> it's what others are using. Well, the GMB union, which represents over 500,000 workers of both the public and private sector, they've already announced strikes of bin workers and those in breweries and the balancing workers at Heathrow Airport and those working in local government. Well, Gary Smith is the General Secretary of the GMB Union, uh, who explained why. We've had industrial unrest around distribution, parcel delivery companies. We've been industrial uh, upset, if it's not got a dispute, around things like retail. Anything with HGV drivers, there has been really significant, a lot of real anger from HGV drivers, aviation. And in the public sector, what we're seeing 
is a rise in anger. The whole of Scotland and local government is currently being balloted for industrial action. So it's really across the piece. And you see, what's happening is that um, I think working ordinary working people are just saying enough is enough. I mean, many of these workers we depended on uh, during the pandemic, they were on the front line. These were retail workers, distribution workers, care workers, public sector workers. And they should be emerging from that global pandemic uh, as heroes, properly re rewarding values for the work that they do. And instead, what they are coming into is a, uh, an economic calamity and a calamity that was made in Downing Street. Much of this was predictable. And um, this is the Tories have caused this problem and people are legitimately standing up and saying we're going to defend our standard of living. How much, though, of this is down to, uh, yes, the economic impact of coming out of uh, coming out of the pandemic, that's helped fuel inflation. Clearly, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is having massive impacts on uh, energy prices, especially, which is, you know, that's driving up the cost of living for so many people. How much of this is within the government's, uh, because, you know, lots of people totally understand if you're in a, you know, if you're in a public sector job, um, uh, your wages haven't gone up but all of your costs have gone up, that's causing a squeeze for you. It's not fair to place all of that blame at the Conservatives' door, is it? Uh, well, the, the issue with energy prices is not simply down to Ukraine. We're going to be importing huge amounts of coal and gas in the years to come because we failed to plan for the country's energy needs. And when Boris Johnson said we're going to build a new nuclear power station every year, it's a lie because we simply don't have the skilled labour to do it apart from anything else. What has happened with uh, energy retail companies that have folded and it's all ended up on people's bills in terms of the biggest state bailouts of energy retail companies, the biggest state bailouts since RBS, this was predictable and it's down to the government. And in terms of what the government's doing on taxation, that's down to 10 and 11 Downing Street. So they are culpable for this. They are responsible for this. And rightly so, when RPI is hitting above 11%, Ordinary working people are saying we are a enough is enough. And so looking ahead then in the coming weeks, GMB isn't alone in having lots of members who have either voted for strike action already or are being balloted or considering it. It's cutting right across because every single person who's got, um, you know, food bills, energy bills, their f f petrol bills, everyone is feeling that squeeze. How big do you think the industrial unrest is going to get this summer. Um, we've, you know, we're we're looking at just on the numbers that we've totted up, hundreds of thousands of people potentially uh, going out on some form of industrial action this summer. Are we, are we heading for a summer of uh, summer of discontent? Uh, we 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 have the potential for a long hot summer. That's absolutely uh, right, unless employers and government are prepared to get around the table and negotiate with us good faith and recognise the pressure that ordinary working people are under. And let me say, it is not helpful. When a millionaire in 10 Downing Street, Boris Johnson, and the well-heeled governor of the Bank of England uh, call for wage restraint amongst low-paid workers uh, and, and tell them that in some way that they are to blame for this economic crisis, they absolutely are not. And just when we're talking about um, the cost of living crisis, the, your point is that the RPI is over 11%. Bank of England thinks CBI, CPI will go above 10% within this year. What does a sensible pay rise look like? Because for lots of businesses and public sector bodies, giving staff 10, 11% pay rises would probably actually mean lots of other colleagues having to be laid off to plug the gaps. What What do you think when, uh, you know, you've got the Bank of England, like you said, and the Prime Minister trying to tell people not to ask for pay rise? What's, what's a reasonable pay rise for people to be asking for this summer? 
I, I, it's going to depend on each sector and, and each industry. And ultimately, trade unions aren't trade unions are just bodies of ordinary people. It's just ordinary men and women who come together and they give their views. So, uh, and our members are invariably very uh, smart people. So, they have a sense of what individual companies can afford. But let's remember, directors' pay is back to where the pre-pandemic levels. They're helping themselves and lining their pockets. Rick, Rishi Sunak has wasted billions, we see in the media this week, as we've gone through the pandemic. So there's been money there. It's just not going in the right right place. And the right place is in the pockets of ordinary working people who sustained us. You know, we rebuilt this country after the Second World War. Ravaged by war, we built a, an economy which was better and fairer and a health service and an education system that was so much better. That's what people in this country deserve, not this calamity that uh, Boris Johnson has concocted with his neighbour in Northern Downing Street. Uh, final question. We've talked a lot about Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. What about the Labour Party? Do you feel like... The Labour Party under Keir Starmer is is standing four square with the union. Sometimes it's a bit hard to work out if he's supporting industrial action or not. Look, my, my business, is my primary concern is not the Labour Party and it's never my job to mark the homework or the report card of the uh, the leader of the opposition. That's really going to be up to the public. My concern, pure and simply, is for, ordinary, uh, for our ordinary members. What I do say to Labour, though, is we are at a crossroads moment in terms of the politics and economy in this country. This really is a, a moment for this country. And uh, I want to see a radical vision for Labour. I think Labour can be far bolder. I think Labour can do much to tackle the cost of living crisis by campaigning for and supporting a high wage economy by lifting up wages in places like care. You know, let's say £15 an hour in care for care workers rather than this penny above the minimum wage. So I want to see bold, uh, a bold programme from Labour. And we are very comfortable talking about sectoral plans for areas like aviation, transport and energy. And we're very comfortable talking about jobs and skills. And we understand that when we're talking about wages, we, we, we are prepared to negotiate over things like productivity as well. So not my job to, to mark his uh, scorecard. I'm not going to lecture the Labour Party, but I think the scope for them would be far bolder because we are emerging into a different world and we really are at a crossroads moment as a country. Uh, that was uh, Gary Smith, who's the uh, uh, General Secretary of the GMB Union. Well, the government in a statement said it would not be fair or right to impose disruption across the board on the British public and business as we're coming out of a pandemic. And we continue to urge the unions to work with us to agree a new way forward. We're also looking at every possible avenue to ensure that future strikes do not punish the public. But as somebody's texted in saying, disappointed but not surprised to see the government apply the same ludicrous logic to strikes that has the protest in the recent crime bill. The entire point of a strike and a protest is to disrupt. The disruption draws attention to the issue as they work. I mean that thousands of the general public pile pressure on the government and parliament to compromise. These strikes will disrupt the public, and that's reasonable. That's one of the relatively few bargaining chips in the hands of the workers. Do let me let me know what you think about that. Well, in commentary, bin workers have been striking for six months, and the Labour Run Council spent millions of pounds outsourcing bin collection services. Dave Nellis is a former commentary Labour MP. He's now chair of the Trade Unionist and Socialist Coalition, which has organised the strikes. He told Anna Cunningham on Times Radio Early Breakfast he was outraged the Labour Council was working against the union it's affiliated to. Now we know where Grant Shapps gets the idea from of hiring uh, agency workers with strikes that are coming up. He looks at a Labour Council in Coventry who've been doing it for uh, several uh, months. 
Now, United is you know, the largest affiliate to uh, uh, Labour, and Sharon Graham, the General Secretary in February, suspended all Labour councillors who are members of Unite from holding office in the, uh, the union, because this is a council employing strike-breaking measures against one of its own affiliated uh, unions and its own uh, uh, workforce. It's an absolute scandal, and it's a scandal it's gone on for so long. Uh, that was Dave Nellis speaking to Times Radio early. Brett Sander coming will be back uh, tomorrow morning from 5am. Well, let's try and put all this into a bit of historical perspective now. Uh, Stephen Fielding is a professor of po- uh, political history at the University of Nottingham and joins me. Morning, Stephen. Hello, Matt. Um, if, it, if there were threatened strikes in the colder weather, we say it's going to be a new winter of discontent. Uh, as the weather warms up, it's a summer of discontent. Uh, so um, uh, Gary Smith talked about a long, hot summer of strikes, how how significant is all of this in in the sort of historical terms? Well, it it's looking like it may be significant. Um, I mean, the the reason why we call anything any strike um, in 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 the time after the, the clocks have gone forward is part of a summer of discontent. Which you know, I've I've been rung up by journalists over many years asking me, is this a new summer of discontent? And it never quite works out. Um, But I think at the moment, we've got so many different kinds of uh, employees who have suffered, you know, like over a decade of stagnant, stagnant incomes and worsening conditions. I mean, somebody claimed that um, it's it's the longest stagnation in incomes since the Napoleonic Wars. And on top of all of that, we've got now obviously inflation. and and so there are just various people from all kinds of different sort of trouble spots that are coming together. I mean, it's not coordinated. A lot of it is going to be local, not national. But there's a lot of, you know, people have been employed out there who basically with with inflation as it's reaching nine or 11 percent, I kind of just just can't take it anymore. They literally can't afford to take it anymore. And then what's the history tell us of whether or not strikes work? Um, the, 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 when there are, because it was somebody texted a minute ago, some of the whole point is to cause disruption. Otherwise, you wouldn't, you know, if it all yeah. passed off without anyone noticing, then there's no point. Do, are there examples of where strikes have worked or where they haven't? Well, um, I mean, if we just look at the, the winter of discontent, the sort of the infamous and mythical winter of discontent, um, if you get, um, if there are certain um, conditions that, that exist, so if you've got a tight labour market, um, if 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 there are more jobs than there are people to fill them, then you 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 go on strike and you're likely to win at least something from that dispute. And and that was the case in the autumn winter of 1978-9, and it's it is the case today. We, you know, you, lots of labour shortages. You know, airports just haven't got people to do the jobs that are needed to be do that needed to be done. So that has to be a context for it. Um, now. There also helps if if legislation, you know, industrial law is is in your favour. And that's what is against trade unions today. Um, One of the reactions to the winter of discontent was the fact the government made it harder to to call a strike. Um, We all had to go through a big process. You had to get over 50 percent of people who could vote, had had to vote for a strike now. Um, you you have you can't really do it really on a national level. Um, it's usually to do with you know, the place of your immediate employment. So this is why the rail strike, the permitted rail strike, is very unusual as a national. It's it's a virtually national strike. So there are lots of various preconditions, and some of them are present now, and some of them aren't. But um, you also do need the public on your side. Um, you you need a government that isn't really sure about what it's doing. So those I think those, those are the 
that's that's we know we know that the, the present government wouldn't like people to go on strike and doesn't want wages to go up but has it got the capacity or the will or the credibility to do it um it's hoping that it can mobilize the public against the strikers and make it into a political um event so yeah. there are lots of variables and some of them are there and some of them are not there for this summer well, we'll see how it uh, how it pans out, and obviously, in lots of cases, it's 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 the early stages of balloting and so on. We'll see um, see what happens. Stephen Fielding, professor of political history at the University of Nottingham, thanks so much for joining us and taking us through uh, a bit of the the potted history of strike action. Uh, just a reminder of the uh, the top uh, top line of our investigations of the unions: uh, some eight hundred thousand workers have either been balloted or in line to be balloted uh, for strike action this summer as union bosses warn of a long, hot summer of industrial action. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.